0: Hi, how's it going, everybody, and welcome to the Debutify podcast, the premier e-commerce podcast brought to you by Debutify. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and today I'll be discussing retention strategies and the power of subscription programs with Brandon Amoroso. Brandon is the founder and president of a Shopify Plus marketing agency called Electric, now a drinks company. Here's our interview. So, welcome to the show, Brandon Amorosa. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you doing? I'm great. So, why don't you give me a little bit of background about yourself? Yeah. So,
1: I'm the founder and president of Electric. We're a Shopify Plus agency. Got about 45 team members spread across the US, specializing in retention marketing. I started that back in mid 2019, just about when I was graduating from uh, USC. For about a year and a half before that, I was just freelancing uh, for small Shopify businesses in and around the L.A. area. Um, And then for the past three years, we've just been growing and scaling, learning a whole lot along the way. We were acquired at the end of April of this year uh, by Beverage Technology Company and helped launch Shopify for Wine at the end of July. And so uh, my time now is sort of split 50-50 between the agency and uh, working uh, with the drinks team and, and Shopify around, uh, the regulatory tech compliance solution that we built with them to be able to power alcohol merchants in the U S to ship direct to consumer on
0: Shopify. So that's the, uh, the quick TLDR. I appreciate it. So is it a drop shipping company beverage that you're talking about? So it is embedded
1: into Shopify's checkout, the tax and compliance solution. It's not a uh, drop shipping. It basically enables wineries and retailers across the US to be able to use Shopify to ship direct to consumer because every state, all the way down to the zip code, has its own unique rules and requirements for uh, shipping uh, alcohol. So uh, historically, there wasn't a solution on Shopify that allowed merchants to be able to do everything they needed to, all the way down to like Prop 65 messaging needs to show up in checkout if you are ordering alcohol and you happen to be in California or if you're in Michigan. There's volume limits in terms of like you can't order more than a certain amount from a winery or a retailer shipped direct to your home in a given time period. So all of that needs to be in place and enabled for merchants to compliantly sell
0: alcohol online. I-, I can imagine those regulations are hard hoops to jump through at times. Yes, it is very, very challenging. Yeah. So I, wa- I wanted to talk about conversational commerce with a tentative SMS marketing. So, could you, on a very base level, explain what SMS marketing is and how you guys use it in your marketing strategy?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, more and more brands are diversifying their their marketing tech stack from email to include SMS marketing as well. So, just in the same place that you would be like texting your friends, uh, brands can now get opt in from uh, consumers who give them their phone number to be able to text them uh, directly, and so. A lot of the work that we do with our brands is around how do you create an integrated email and SMS marketing strategy, especially for customers who are going to be subscribed to you in both channels. And there are two very different forms of communication, obviously. I mean, email, people are used to getting tens, if not, I've seen some inboxes, hundreds of emails a day. Uh, people just go through, delete, delete. Uh, unsubscribe rates are not necessarily as quick or as high. Whereas SMS, you have significantly higher click-through rates. It's a much more personal form of communication as well.
0: So how do you get away for the subscribers of these emails and this SMS marketing to actually engage in a productive and meaningful way?
1: Yeah. So one of those ways is to leverage things like conversational commerce. What conversational commerce is in SMS marketing is the ability to send like a prompt to a customer that's automated. And depending on how they reply, it will branch them down a different response path. And so simple example of this would be setting up like a a coffee quiz via text. So somebody joins the SMS marketing program. They get a text that says, hey, like we want to know what type of coffee you like to drink. Reply one if it's light coffee. Reply two if it's medium. Reply three if it's dark coffee. Then they reply. That branches them down one of three paths. And then we can hit them with another question, which is, do you prefer ground or whole bean? Reply one for ground, reply two for whole bean. And then depending on how they reply, that also branches them down a different path all the way until we give them a product re- recommendation at the end of that series of questions. The, their responses are also saved as data points on their customer profile in the SMS marketing platform. So then in the future, I know like John likes uh, dark coffee and he likes it ground. So why would I send him campaign or text around whole bean and light coffee? If I know he likes dark and ground. That's really the two most effective ways that we found to be able to leverage SMS marketing is that conversational commerce component where you're like leading people to a product recommendation. But then moving forward, you can use that data for segmentation and personalization as well.
0: Yeah. So you're able to actually extrapolate this extremely important data from this conversational commerce that you can then use to personalize your marketing strategy with these, um, potential customers or clients. That's awesome. So nowadays it's kind of like, um, you know, business models are either pretty much subscription or non-subscription based. Why do you think? And and do you think, which one do you think is more appropriate? An e-commerce brand that should have a subscription model or should not?
1: I think most brands should have both. I don't like the, the the companies that are subscription only typically, especially when it's like a very, very incentivized first order. So get like 50% off your first order and then you get auto enrolled into the subscription or get your first order for free. And then everything else is at the standard price, especially because it's sort of if you do have the ability to purchase one shot orders, it almost forces you into why would I ever Try this product unless it's on a subscription. But as soon as you're on that subscription, if you churn off the subscription, you're much less likely to ever come back as a customer than if you're just a one shot customer who forgets to place their next order or who comes uh, ends up having like different tastes or preferences. So I think it's important to have both avenues and something we've been looking at more and more are actually like membership programs. So you pay like it's kind of like Amazon Prime where you pay a given amount per month or per year for special like perks, discounts, uh, features, benefits, and so on. And so that's actually an interesting model because then you can not have people on a traditional subscription, but still getting the benefits and perks that would usually be associated with a subscription program. I just think it's important to have both avenues, both the one-shot and the subscription, because not every customer wants to be on a subscription, uh, but some people really enjoy having that subscription component set and forget. And easy to manage is super important. If you make it very convoluted and difficult for people to be able to manage their own subscription, you're ultimately going to end up with a lot of dissatisfied customers. And we actually see that the lifetime value of customers who do like skip an order or take an action on their account, even if it might seem counterintuitive, like, oh, they're gonna they're skipping an order, we're gonna have a less less LTV from that customer. It's the opposite because of the fact that they're engaging with the program. And they're able to easily manage it.
0: Yeah. So why do you think it's critical to audit your subscription experience?
1: Because you can't just set and forget these things. If you do, there's always going to be something that comes up, whether it's like core functionality that's not working, which is obviously like a critical error, or just ways that you could extend or improve it. And so I think it's important, whether it's subscription or just your general website experience to audit that either every month or every other month just to make sure that you're going through the process, making sure it's as seamless as possible. You want to reduce friction as much as you can. And so it's important to continue to audit that experience. Sure, you're looking for things that are mission critical, like, oh, can they process the payment on the website? But beyond that, it's more about how can we improve it? How do you do that like specifically, honestly, while, while being thorough? So our audit encompasses a lot of different things one of it is tech stack like if you're not set up on the right tech stack it's going to be very difficult to create and implement really robust retention strategies for uh, your customers so that's one of the things that we look at first and foremost second is analyzing the data so what does the repeat purchase rate look like what does the lifetime value of our customers look like is this trending in a positive direction or not and then a lot of it can come from Uh, customer feedback as well. So having things in place like a post-purchase survey, how did your website experience go? Is there anything we can improve? And for people that do end up canceling their subscription, getting a cancellation reason from them, whether it's this product was too expensive or my taste changed or whatever it may be, that can help inform the things that we need to work on for that program. Because if 500 people cancel and 400 of them are saying that the product's too expensive, and maybe we need to think about either changing pricing, or we need to think about perhaps we're not acquiring
0: the right customer for this particular product. So let's say that you you do lose a customer. They fill out your survey. They say, you know, it's too many ads, or it doesn't pertain to me. Whatever they say is that customer now just lost. You'll never be able to get them back. How can you actually get them back after say they might have a bad experience or they kind of floated away?
1: Yeah. So. If they cancel, uh, we always have like a cancellation wind backflow setup, whether it's incentivizing them to come back with uh, an additional discount or some sort of messaging around that. And then they'll sort of live in a segment in our uh, CRM platform that is canceled subscription customers. And so we know that they used to be on a subscription, they're not anymore. And so we'll communicate with them differently in our campaigns and one-time messaging that goes out in the future. But it is significantly harder to get them uh, back than it is to say a one-shot customer who just happened to forget to order in the past like 90 days or 120 days and then hitting them with messaging, reminding them to do so. And that's why it's so important to have uh, sort of like cancellation retention tactics in place within your portal so that somebody logs in, they go to cancel a subscription and then they select the reason this is too expensive. Maybe you surface a pop-up that shows, hey, actually we'll give you 10% off for the rest of your subscription if you stay active. Just click this button or whatever. They click it, great, they've been retained. If they don't and it's going to be significantly harder to get them to come back. So there's a lot of things uh sort of in the platform that we want to put in place to try and make it as sticky as possible.
0: No, that's smart. So when it comes to your competition or other brands, what what are some things that they mistake or get wrong about loyalty programs? Yeah, so
1: loyalty programs are tricky because A lot of brands have just sort of thrown them up on their website. There's a lot of plug and play solutions on Shopify, for example, that allow you to stand up a loyalty program pretty easily. But if it's not embedded into the actual customer journey, and it's more so just sort of thrown up there, and you're not going to get the adoption that you need from your customers in order for it to sort of prove out its worth, it needs to be in the checkout process. It needs to be in your like customer welcome email. You need to have it in your transactional communications. You need to remind people in the campaigns and messages that they get sent. Hey, you have this much store credit left, or you have this much, this many points left, or, hey, you actually haven't created an account yet. Go create one because this is all the things that you're not going to get access to. If you just throw it up there, like the little widget in the bottom left corner of your site? It's not really going to do anything. There's been sort of mixed message. I'd say there's been messaging around like an increase in retention and LTV just as a byproduct of adding a loyalty program to your site. But that's not the case. The only way to truly get that is to leverage it as a way in your email, SMS, push, direct mail communications to get customers back to the site and engaging with it. If you don't have all those pieces in place, then it's just going to be an expensive software that's sitting on your site that's not really doing a whole lot for you.
0: And I want to build on that a little bit. So You know, I was talking with Nigel Thomas, you know, our last episode, he was much more motivated on customer retention rather than customer acquisition. How do we grow DTC businesses using kind of like customer lifecycle as a focus rather than customer acquisition? Yeah. So
1: more and more, you're seeing a transition to retention, because the cost of acquiring customers getting so much more expensive, you really need to be, especially as there's more and more like competition in any given category, there has to be a focus on how do we like differentiate ourselves from uh, the rest of the competition. And having a really strong LTV is a great signal of business help because it means your customers are coming back, they're buying from you, enjoy the product. I'd rather have a higher CAC and a higher LTV than a lower CAC and a lower LTV. Because the higher LTV shows that you are a brand that people want to continue to purchase from and you're attracting higher quality customers as well. And also the more LTV you can get, the more wiggle room you have to test when it comes to acquiring customers. Because if your LTV is $500, whether you're customers for $50 or a hundred, there's more flexibility and room there to test with different media channels and to go out and say, uh, we're going to do like a strategic deployment of a direct mail campaign to see
0: if that might have uh, some legs. The higher the LTV, the easier life just gets across the board. That makes a lot of sense to me. We've heard a lot about right around now, Generation Z has started entering the workplace. I'm a millennial myself, but... Um, generation z started to enter the workplace we hear a lot about it on you know finance news and whatnot but not a lot of information is given about generation z building workplaces and businesses that go against I i assume you're also a millennial i actually in the gen z category you are in the Gen Z category. Amazing. All right. Under, that's perfect. But, so but yes. you're on the you're on the older side of it. So how do we kind of parse through that then? So what has your strategy been? Is there kind of like a certain way of thinking that you align to that Generation Z doesn't align to? Or kind of what are your what are your thoughts on you know that cultural significance?
1: The easiest way to to think about it is it's just a non-traditional sort of workplace and environment that I think we we typically thrive in and we have higher expectations around what we should be accountable for and in, in contributing to the larger sum of the company. At least for me, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to start electric is I didn't want to be sort of boxed into a narrow scope and role within a giant organization that was hesitant to change or didn't really look towards people with less experience as maybe their opinion isn't as valuable. Here, you You really just need to focus on like training and getting that experience before you can have a seat at the table, which for me, it has less to do with experience and more about who's willing to put in the work and effort and has nice, like sort of good and innovative ideas. That's what I value more than anything. It could be 15 years old or 100. It doesn't really matter. And I think having a combination of those different viewpoints and experiences is also important as well. Like if you have a team of just a bunch of 55 year olds or if you have a team of just a bunch of 20 year olds you're going to sort of not have that full perspective uh, from a generational standpoint that I think is important because different generations inter- interact and engage with things in different ways
0: so what what I'm hearing you say Brandon is that you're you're an advocate for diversity
1: yes just in in everything i think is important but i also don't think it makes sense to like force yourself to to have it either because like when we went about hiring for electric, it was sort of who's the best fit in terms of skill and capabilities and who's the best fit in terms of culture. However, everything else fell. Uh, it just happened to be that because of the fact that we went about hiring in that way, we ended up with a very like sort of unique, uh, creative and diverse team.
0: So have, have you noticed any sort of like specific trends in terms of ways of thinking between you know your generation millennials generation x in the workplace or is it is it really more solution focused are there are there any sort of obstacles that come with diversity
1: work has meant different things for different generations especially now where work is i feel like it's becoming almost a little bit less of employees identities because they're remote and so it's not like you're going into this office Every week at five clocking and clocking out, um, which I think I had, I think it has pros and cons. Pros being you have really a lot of flexibility. It rewards those that are self starters and are able to be autonomous. Cons being it's very difficult, I think, to have like, really strong collaboration. If you don't have any in-person interaction, just humans in general, we bond and have shared experiences that are physical. So if you only ever see somebody over a screen, uh, it's difficult to feel like you're truly a part of something. So I think those are the biggest differences that
0: that I've seen. I like that. I think I think that's that's pretty insightful. I I agree, frankly. And to kind of expound on that, you know, while we're looking at cultural trends, the Great Resignation or or the Big Quit um, has kind of been something that we've seen in the last year, year and a half. I want to get your thoughts on one why you think that is kind of the place that we're at right now. You know, where we have a lot of industries that feel like they're not, that I personally feel like they're not understanding how to fundamentally make these changes in the workplace culture. That's a part of the factor. Could you kind of explain, you know, other parts of that factor and how it comes to
1: an end, essentially? I think it varies from industry to industry. I had an internship in college, for example, at a Fortune 500 company in in an industry that only had like three or four businesses. So there wasn't a ton of competition because the cost to get up and running in that field, I'm talking like billions of dollars of capital investment that would be required because of the physical sort of plants that they needed to do all the manufacturing. And so that is an industry where I think the sort of the pressure to continue to innovate and change is almost non-existent because, you, it's not like e-commerce where you have thousands and thousands of brands constantly innovating, pushing the needle forward, trying to compete with one another. I mean, you had like three legitimate players in the space, and that's it. So, in that sense, I think industry—it's very industry-specific. Sure, I think they benefit a lot from changing things, but at the same time, they also had a—they had an employee base that looked significantly different than like my employees do at electric like most of the people there had been there for 20 25 years they had their systems they had their processes Would the friction that somebody coming in pushing through some of these more like open workplace environment changes cause would that be more detrimental even though you would be getting some value from it like there were things there that they didn't have automated that should have been automated like five or ten years ago and i Brought that to the like, table, like what? If you don't mind me asking, just things that you could you could plug into like a formula. Like let's say theoretically you had a, a set of. Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, but let's say you had a, a roll of paper that was like 300 inches, and you needed to cut it down into I don't know two 80 inch, but then three 40 inch, and then how do you make up the rest of it, and how do you get it to be uh, with as much yield as possible so that you're not losing any of that paper. And so it's important you have to be able to cut it up into the right sizes at the manufacturing plant. Now, you can't possibly begin to tell me that a human being should be the one deciding what that optimal cut looks like. Yeah, It should be plugged into like a MATLAB or something that can go through all the various things. And here's how you get maximum yield based off of the requirements that you have. And that's just one example. But you also can't fault them for it because they're a very successful, ginormous company making a lot of money every year. So it's sort of uh it's just one of those things.
0: Do you see that as a growing trend in companies where, you know, there there are some that are so big that they have the finances to be innovative and push the boundaries and get into a space that maybe they always haven't been? Or do you more see it as if it's not broke, don't fix it when it when it comes to a lot of these companies?
1: There's ways that you can Sort of do both because you don't want to disrupt existing business processes that are working well, but you do want to constantly be like testing and iterating. So you could think of it the same way as you think of like an e-commerce website. Maybe you run a test and you only send five or ten percent of your site traffic to that test. Then, if it works, then you open it up to a larger sample size, and then maybe you roll it out to the entire thing. That's the same way that I would think about innovating in a in a in a very large company that has a lot to lose. You, I don't know, let's say it's like a thousand person marketing agency. You want to test a potential like new onboarding process, do it with a small sample size, see how it works before deciding to roll it out to the entire organization. Whereas on our side, we're not ginormous. So being at 45 team members, we have less risk, like less innovation risk. Whereas much larger sort of established industry players are going to have that. And so there's there's a blessing and a curse to that.
0: No, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense, and and you have a little more freedom of mobility, if you will, to kind of like be a little dangerous and try different things and yeah. be innovative.
1: And that's what we lean into as well. Like you're not going to work with us because we have 20 years of experience and we have this very like laser focused, defined, almost corporate like structure you're going to work with us because we're innovative. We're pushing the needle. We bring new insights and ideas to the table. So that is what we
0: lean into. Anything we haven't talked about that's one of these cool innovations that you're really trying to push the boundaries of a little bit? Or or, or is there a, a tight lid on that? I guess,
1: I mean, there's multiple things that we're trying to innovate on, whether it's from a technology perspective, or it's from just the way that we interact and engage with clients to the way that we onboard new team members ourselves. We're just trying to make All of our processes as efficient and as valuable as possible and so with that really just a constant need and desire for continual improvement which is something that we try to instill across the entire team and just because something is going well doesn't mean it can't be improved and just because you're being onboarded to this new agency we already have all these existing processes doesn't mean that you shouldn't ever question them And I think that's where a lot of organizations go astray, especially the larger they get and bring on new team members. Here's how we do things. This is how we do it. And there isn't that sort of point made where, hey, you should be thinking about whether or not there is still a way that we could potentially change this or improve it. So I'm very specific with any of our new hires that just because this is the way that we're doing things now, whether it's your onboarding process, or the way that we're interfacing with clients, doesn't mean that it can't be tweaked or optimized to provide a better experience. So something I like to do on like a quarterly or biannual basis is just get every team member to submit two to three things that we're not doing that we should be doing. And then that allows me to get really more than like 140 different ideas around everything from continuing education resources to uh, the company should potentially be looking at paying for this like work from home stipend to here's how we could better improve our onboarding process and from that not only are we getting a lot of buy-in from the team as well the executive team is hearing our ideas for me it helps a lot because I'm not as close to the day-to-day of some of these things anymore and so to be able to get that feedback directly and to foster that sort of uh, organizational culture of openness is really important and has allowed us to continue to be successful even as we've we've grown in size.
0: Where would you like to be in, I don't know, say two to three years?
1: I think we're going to continue to use electric as a sort of breeding and testing ground for new ideas and development within uh, the Shopify space. And it's really important for us to be at the cutting edge of trends and technologies that we can then bring over to the drink side of things. So the company that acquired us being able to help the alcohol industry understand best practices when it comes to e-commerce and how there are parallels between the work that we've done historically with like CPG brands and uh, what you'd look at as more traditionally digitally native companies versus the alcohol industry, which historically has lagged behind when it comes to direct consumer adoption, e-commerce tools and technologies. There's a wide variety of reasons for that that we don't need to get into, but basically What I'm focused on is how do we help this industry modernize its online experience and be able to better direct with its customers one-to-one.
0: I'll tell you personally, as a um, resident of Virginia in the U.S., our liquor licenses run from the government. So we're one of the states where you can get beer and wine at like a retail store like a Walmart or Kroger, but you have to go to the Virginia ABC that location only if you want to get liquor do you think that drinks it would behoove drinks to have say like an advocacy division because that would i i would imagine make it a little easier to you know extrapolate even more customers if if they could go online and buy a a bottle of gin or something because they they can't hear is advocacy part of that piece
1: Yeah. I mean, there's
0: massive like lobbying
1: organizations and things that go into the way that the regulatory framework has been set up within the US. What we're really trying to do is enable uh, alcohol companies to work within the existing framework and structure. We're not here nor are we of the size that would be required to like, let's say lobby the state of Virginia to do X, Y, or Z. Um, Sure. We're a proponent of like open and free commerce, but we're we, we don't have the firepower for that, nor is it our place to do so. It's more so here. Here are the laws in Virginia right now. How do we help alcohol companies navigate them successfully to be able to uh, go the direct consumer? I mean, for wine, it's significantly easier than the other beverage categories. So that's where we started and that's what we're most focused on right now. But the other ones, um, you're, you're getting more and more sort of ground roots pressure from these companies. And it's going to happen by itself. Now, it'll take tens of years. I mean, if you look at uh, alcohol regulations in the U.S., it is extremely slow moving when it comes to any changes coming across. Naturally, just like with anything, there's going to
0: be sort of a, a push and a migration to uh, more openness than anything. And that's with a lot of industries. I mean, the the ones that have been around for so long don't like change because it means that the people in charge are going to have to give away a little bit of, you know, a little piece of their pie. So I want to start wrapping up a little bit and, and ask you the question we always ask at the end of our show is being in the e-commerce space, being as busy as you are, how do you spend your free time? How do you, how do you retain your sanity in such a a busy, busy world?
1: I need to travel a fair amount, both for work. And for, and for pleasure, food, sports, the typical, the typical things. But I think what's also important is the fact that I'm pretty passionate, not just about e-commerce, but also just entrepreneurship in general. So a lot of my free time is spent on working on electric or like working on personal brand or other side projects that I have going on, because that's what excites me and I'm passionate about. And so I think it's pretty important that you can find something that you enjoy doing. Because if you don't, then it really is going to be quite the grind. Um, but if you do, and it's super cliche and cheesy and obnoxious to say, but if you do find something you enjoy, like you'd naturally just like want to do it more and more. Like every weekend, I'm writing my newsletter and it's going out on Sunday. Why am I doing that? Because I enjoy it and I enjoy the conversations that come of it and the learnings that I, that I have. And I, I just innately have a desire to continue to push the envelope forward mm. and learn new things. But if I didn't, then it would be. A drag for me and I would hate it. And I think that kind of answers your question.
0: No, it does. And and I think that's again one of those generational things. I've always been an advocate of if you don't like what you do, you should. So I, I appreciate authenticity in that answer, Brandon. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we wrap up?
1: No, I mean if anybody wants to connect
0: or or get in touch, you can always find
1: me on LinkedIn, which is Brandon Amoroso. That's probably the easiest place, or my website, Brandonamaroso.com. Happy to chat about anything e-commerce related Shopify, or I feel like there's a lot of uh, parallels from sort of starting and, and running an agency that can be transmitted into different industries. So happy to happy to connect and chat about it.
0: It's amazing. Connect with Brandon on LinkedIn. So Brandon, thank you for your time. We really appreciate having you. Thank you for having me. Super fun. I want to thank Brandon Amoroso for joining us on the show. And thanks to our producer, Micah Quinto for producing it. Tune in next week when I talk with Monica Sharma Patnikar, an e-commerce brand mentor and consultant about her Desires Over Demographics framework and how to use it to learn about consumer psychology. For more information about Brandon, you can visit his website, BrandonAmaroso.com, or you can find him on LinkedIn. You can also listen to Brandon's own e-commerce podcast, the D2Z podcast, now available on all platforms. And to learn more about electric marketing, you can check out their website, electricmarketing.com. That's spelled E-L-E-C-T-R-I-Q, marketing. That's our show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you tune in to new episodes being published every Tuesday. We'll see you then.